0: Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lithub Radio.
1: Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets. And I'm
0: Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra De Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider how investigative reporting can help unravel a deception with global implications
1: and illuminate the nature of truth itself. The story of this particular investigation began in September 2012, when a highly respected Harvard professor named Karen King announced that she had in her possession an ancient scrap of papyrus in which Jesus referred to Mary Magdalene as, quote-unquote, my wife. Karen King titled the manuscript fragment, The Gospel of Jesus' Wife. If authentic, if in fact Jesus had a wife, then it dramatically undermined centuries of sacred teachings on marriage, sexuality, celibacy in the priesthood, and women's leadership. Karen King had just been promoted by Harvard to its Hollis Professorship of Divinity, the oldest endowed chair in America, and one of the most prestigious posts in the study of Christianity. From the very start, though, serious questions were raised about the legitimacy of the gospel of Jesus's wife. Journalist Ariel Sabar dove into all of those questions and wrote up what he found in a marvelous book called Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus's wife. I love this book so much. Yeah, this is a great book. (laughs) such a good book.
0: (laughs) So Ariel is an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Atlantic, Smithsonian Magazine, Harper's, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. He's worked as a staff writer at the Providence Journal, the Baltimore Sun, and Christian Science Monitor. Ariel won the National Book Critics Circle Award for his first book, My Father's Paradise, A Son's Search for His Jewish Past in Kurdish Iraq. Veritas, his book about Karen King and the Gospel of Jesus' Wife, was a finalist for the Edgar Award for Best True Crime Book of the Year and for the Investigative Reporters and Editors Book Award. So Ariel began covering the story of the Gospel of Jesus' Wife at the very moment when Karen King first announced that she believed she'd discovered it. The announcement happened at an academic conference of her peers that happened to be held right across the street from the Vatican. Talk about symbolism. Right. Uh, and Ariel was covering it as a reporter for the Smithsonian. We asked him how he first learned of the story. Here's what he said.
2: I began writing for Smithsonian Magazine just as a freelancer. And I think I'd only turned in one piece for them. And I really didn't know how, how well received it was because not in, it had not been published yet. And so one day I got a call from a senior editor there, someone very, very high up with the masthead who I'd never heard from before. And I thought, you know, your first instinct is like, oh, gosh, you know, they didn't like my piece. They're calling to kill it. And it turned out, thankfully, not to be that at all. I said, we really liked your first piece. We're going to publish it soon. We don't have a date for it yet. But we have this other story that sort of just fell into our lap. It looks like we're going to get an exclusive. It's this Harvard professor, very esteemed professor at the Harvard Divinity School, who believes she has discovered the first text from antiquity in which Jesus refers to a wife, and she's calling it the gospel of Jesus's wife. We need to move quickly because she's about to announce this in Rome in about three weeks. She's giving us early access. We're gonna basically be able to break the news as soon as she goes public with it. How would you like to get on a plane to Harvard as soon as possible, to interview her, to see the papyrus, and then fly to Rome when she announces this discovery to a, you know, a group of elite scholars at a conference that turns out to have been directly across from the Vatican. Um, I hadn't particularly covered the New Testament or controversies about the New Testament or about any, anything of the sort really before that. So it was really a completely brand new subject for me.
0: Amazing. Talk about your life changing in a moment.
2: Yeah. I wasn't really sure at the time um, where this was going to go. I thought it would be sort of a, a fascinating story. I think What gave it credibility is certainly for a place like Smithsonian Magazine, you know, which doesn't do frivolous stuff. It's a very serious magazine. It covers stuff in depth. It's affiliated with the Smithsonian institutions. That editor was very clear. It's like, you know, clearly there's a lot of stuff that a lot of wild claims about this ancient discoveries bearing on the life of Jesus out there. We don't really cover a lot of those, but this is coming out of Harvard. And I think that was really important for Smithsonian Magazine. This is coming out of Harvard. This is not some kook. You know, um, this is not the National Enquirer. This is not the Shroud of Turin. This is Harvard University saying that they've made a discovery. And so we've got early access. How would you like to be on the front lines while we break this story? Mm -hmm.
1: So the whole story unfolds because of really this scrap of papyrus. And there was so much unknown about it, like how old it actually was, who actually wrote it, what its words actually mean there's just a tremendous amount left to be gleaned from interpretation. How typical is that for our knowledge of ancient Christianity? How does it differ, for example, from the Gospels of the New Testament?
2: That's a terrific question. So, I mean, you know, the sort of quickie um, history here is, you know, in the first centuries of Christianity, Christians, believers, were writing all kinds of texts and thinking all kinds of things about what Jesus' life and teachings meant. And so there were a lot of ideas that were circulating in the early centuries of Christianity. And I think what most of people, um, if they're believers and they go to church, what they see when they open their Bible is sort of a curated selection of texts. They were the texts that made the cut into what's known as the New Testament, which is sort of the officially sanctioned book of sacred scriptures. Now, of course, if you're Orthodox or if you're a devout Catholic, you will say that there's no accident. Those texts are in the New Testament because those were the works chosen by God to be the actual reflection of his meaning and the meaning of Jesus' life. If you're a historian, you'll say that these were chosen because they reflected a certain kind of um, ideology. They will point to a lot of historical and political reasons for specific texts making the the cut to the New Testament and other texts sort of being discarded. And you ask a question about, well, how do we know what these earliest texts said? Well, with the text that made the New Testament, we know what they said because they were copied um, from antiquity through essentially the present. The key period there was the medieval period, when all the ancient texts, uh, or many of the ancient texts, were copied by medieval monks and essentially preserved for the modern period. And there are disputes. I mean, not, not all ancient texts of even the, the four canonical gospels survive in the same form. In fact, there's quite a bit of disagreement. But the medieval monks sort of preserved those texts because they were officially sanctioned to modernity. And that's what we have more or less in the New Testament. However, the texts that did not make the New Testament, they were not copied by the medieval monks. And so what we know about them is often quite fragmentary because papyrus, um, it's pretty durable. And it's durable in places that have a very dry climate like Egypt. It survives, but it very, very infrequently survives in complete form. So what you'll often have is not a complete codex or book that actually preserves these ancient texts verbatim page by page, but you'll have a few scraps. You know, It's like someone cut out a portion of a page of a book or several portions of a page of a book, and the rest has either been eaten by insects or you know, uh, fallen away due to the elements. So what survives often of these non-canonical texts, um, the ones that did not make the New Testament, are often partial and incomplete and often cryptic because we don't often have a lot of the surrounding text to help us make sense of the text that survives.
1: Can you tell us about the banished gospels that don't appear in the church sanctioned New Testament and how they're relevant for your story, the backdrop that they provide for the story?
2: There are a lot of different names that scholars use to describe the texts that did not make the New Testament. I mean, everything from non-canonical to extra-canonical to apocryphal. Sometimes people will use the term Gnostic to refer to a certain subset of the text that did not make the New Testament. And they're important because they open a window on how diverse Christian thinking was before church leaders coalesced around a certain set of sacred texts. And they're important to this story because Karen King, who's sort of the protagonist of my book, Veritas, was one of the leading scholars of these so-called Gnostic texts. And she was particularly interested in the most cryptic of these texts, the texts that survived in in the most partial fragmentary forms. And that was really where her genius lay. It was kind of this ability to look at these texts, particularly, uh, for instance, the Gospel of Mary, which was one of the central parts of her scholarship, Gospel of Mary a text written, thought to be written sometime in the second century, probably the late second century. It's a remarkable text because it's the only known gospel uh, written in the name of a woman. And number two, it portrays this Mary who's thought to be Mary Magdalene as superior, having a superior sort of spiritual discernment. She was better at sort of understanding Jesus' teaching than any of the male gospels were. And so Karen King is like the, one of the leading scholars of the Gospel of Mary in the world, if not, if not the leading scholar if you did have a new gospel, especially a new gospel that portrayed Mary Magdalene in like a previously unknown way, she was the scholar you would go to because she was the scholar who was most sort of publicly associated with these non-canonical texts and specifically ones that portrayed Mary Magdalene in a sort of uncharacteristically powerful role.
0: Can you put us in the room in 2012 when Karen King announced the existence of the gospel of Jesus, his wife. This was at the conference in Rome. What was that like? And what was the fallout?
2: Yeah, that was really, a really interesting moment. It turned out I was the only journalist in the room. You know, we're in this room that's overlooking the dome of St. Peter's Basilica, like it was really like a Hollywood-like setting where you have a representative of Harvard. You know, the you couldn't get a better sort of symbol of reason with a capital R than Harvard, right? It's the its 400-year-old motto is Veritas, which is the Latin word for truth. And you're literally looking out the window at the richest and most powerful religious institution in the world, um, the Catholic Church, and they're like literally like facing each other down across a narrow co- cobblestone street. So I wasn't sort of insensible to the symbolism uh, of the moment. Reason like dropping a bomb at the door of faith. But in the room that day, you know, these are the highest level scholars of Coptic language and culture. Coptic refers to the language and culture of Egypt's earliest Christians. And the gospel of Jesus's life was written in Coptic. Mm -hmm. So we're in the room, you know, it's about three dozen people, and Karen King very modestly walks to the front of the room and presents her discovery. The actual discovery is not there, and this will become significantly, not there are any photographs of it. She's just describing it verbally. And she's giving them like a, her own translation of the eight lines of fragmentary Coptic that appear on the fragment. And, you know, right away there there are questions. Um, because the scholars can't see the papyrus for themselves, not even in images, the questions about authenticity aren't immediately because they don't have any basis to question it. And there'll be questions later about why Karen King withheld photos from that very important first presentation. But the absence of photos was actually quite disturbing to a lot of the scholars in the room. Like one of them literally stood up and said, I am dissatisfied, which if you've ever been to an academic conference, they're usually very, you know, they're pretty genteel, you know, at least in public, when people ask questions, they're very respectful. Everything is like couched and If it's asked at all aggressively, it's like passive aggressively. So this was a very direct confrontation from actually someone who had worked with Karen King for many years, who said, why are there no photos? And then there were questions also right away about Karen King's interpretation, because the sort of headline making line in the papyrus appears dead center. It's like literally the central line on what's supposed to be a random fragment. So that, in and of itself was a a bit suspicious. but the line itself simply says Jesus said to them my wife. Mm-hmm. So we don't know what words came before it and which words came after it. That has to be intuited from the other surviving lines of text which are all fragmentary. And so right away scholars were saying, well, how do we know what the rest of that line says? How do we know that the rest of that line doesn't say my wife is the church or as the comedian John Stewart said when he had some fun with this is it, how do we know that it didn't say my wife I don't have a wife. Um, um, there was a lot of filling in the gaps required to interpret this text simply because there were a lot of gaps. And again, that was Karen King's genius. She was really good at taking these cryptic texts with all these gaps in it and sort of wresting really powerful meaning from them and in ways that other scholars either weren't comfortable doing or didn't have the intellectual capacity to do, and in my book Veritas, I, I, I describe it, the Gospel of Jesus' Wife, as, as kind of a Mad Lib, um, or Rorschach test, depending on how you look at it. Depending on which scholar you gave it to, they would probably fill in those blanks in very different ways to serve their own purposes. We haven't gotten to the con artist here yet, <laughs> but when we start talking about him, you'll see it becomes very clear that Karen King was selected as the recipient of this Gospel Very deliberately, because the con artist knew precisely how a scholar with Karen King's interests and lifelong quest as a scholar and her unique skill set would approach a papyrus with these kinds of gaps.
1: I love the image of a Coptic scholar standing after Karen Keene spoke and saying, I am dissatisfied. Oh, I <laughs> so, know. Totally. I am dissatisfied. <laughs> <I'm> dissatisfied. <laughs> Woo, mic drop. Was, <laughs> right, right. That's their way of registering intense skepticism and disapproval. Um, and in the book, there's a really fascinating discussion of how, after the story broke in the global media, the not so rarefied world of internet sleuths Took the case on and uncovered signs that the papyrus had been faked.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. A few amateur historians made very real contributions to the historical record. These were people with advanced degrees who had other day jobs, but stayed interested in the subjects they studied. One was Andrew Bernhard, who worked as a real estate agent and as a software marketer, but he also has a master's in Greek and Roman history from Oxford. He was super excited about the gospel of Jesus's wife, but as he looked at it more closely, he realized that there were errors that tracked exactly with errors in an eccentric modern translation of an otherwise authentic gospel, the gospel of Thomas. So this independent researcher uncovered something the more recognized scholars at big universities didn't.
1: It's so interesting that Karen King herself didn't dive deeper into whether the gospel of Jesus's wife was authentic before she announced to the world that it was. And she did some preliminary investigation, but it was rudimentary and questionable. We talked to Ariel about why that was, and he says it's in part connected with her being a postmodernist scholar. I know you've studied postmodernism a bit. No matter how much, it's far more than I've done. Can you say a little about the postmodernist view of truth and how Karen King could have used it to justify a forged document? Sure. I studied postmodernist theory in college, and one of the
0: central concepts is that there's never just one truth. Instead, there are always a multiplicity of truths. So the classic example of this idea comes from Ferdinand de Saussure, who was a Swiss linguist and semiotician. Saussure talked about the word tree. So if you say the word tree, you and I have very different images of what that word means. In fact, if you say the word tree to 100 different people or 1,000 different people, you'll get 100 or 1,000 different meanings of the word tree. And even if you put us all in a field, an empty field with one tree, and we are all looking at the exact same tree, we're all seeing something slightly different because each of us brings to that viewing our own individual experiences.
1: So are you with me so far? Yes, I, I, I do get that, but I think it's important to note that there's a limit. So if you say, imagine a tree just a tree to two different people, they will almost certainly imagine different trees, but they're not imagining a kitchen sink or a swimming pool or an elephant, right? They're imagining a thing in the category that we have defined as tree. Yes, absolutely. And what you're saying, and I think
0: Sosura would agree, is that the word tree is a symbol for that green and brown thing that grows from the earth. We can never get to a perfect definition of that thing because of our infinite perspectives, which are in turn shaped by our experiences and identities. And so the symbol is the best we can do. And it's that shaping that I think is really important. And I I wanna just kind of give a shout out of support for postmodern theory a little bit because it has absolutely shaped the way I look at the world. And that's because it's always looking for the stories that aren't being told. It's looking for the immigrant perspective, the perspective of poverty, the feminist perspective, the queer perspective, the perspectives of people of color. I think postmodern theory has profound and really important implications for both literature and life. But I don't agree with the postmodern idea that because there are a multiplicity of truths, there is no real which I think is essentially how Karen King is able to say that it it doesn't matter that the gospel of Jesus's wife is fake. Personally, I believe facts exist. The fact is that the gospel of Jesus's wife is a forgery. And while there can be infinite perspectives on that single forged document, it matters that it's a forgery. And it matters that at the very least, Karen King told lies of omission about it.
1: To be clear, I absolutely agree that it matters. <laughs> that I, it is I know important. that about you. <laughs> yes, exactly. I do think that Karen King's approach to that issue is interesting because it suggests that she, this sort of preeminent scholar of Christianity, believes on some level that that whole world isn't real. It's almost as if she was thinking all of this is based on faulty foundations or infinite foundations, whatever you want to call it. And so does one more faulty foundation really matter? It's all shaky. So does one more addition to the shakiness matter? She never came out and said that. I don't know whether she believes that, but it's one way that my brain can make sense of what she did. Anyway, we talk more with Ariel about what this episode reveals about truth. But first we ask him, how independent scholars like Andrew Bernhard are impacting academia today. Here's what he said.
2: I think it really is part and parcel of the way in which the internet as a whole and and social media have democratized sort of the the public square. It used to be that, you know, they they called it, you know, the Ivy Tower for a reason. It was a tower that only few could scale. You know, there are all these gatekeepers um, who said who is in and who is out. You weren't going to be able to publish unless you were doing pretty great work. And it would help if you had an affiliation at a place like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, you know, one of the top universities. And I think what particularly academics started doing, not so much on on social media, but particularly on blogs, was that they started making that space available to scholars who may not have had official positions at a big or famous university, but who were actually quite smart and doing really interesting research. It allowed them to sort of collaborate, in some cases as a group, in some cases just working individually, to make discoveries that wound up being quite significant into the investigation of whether or not the gospel of Jesus' wife was a forgery. So it really lowered the barriers to entry. That's a big change. I don't think that scholars of, of Karen King's generation We're ready for that. I think that they thought that, well, you know, I'm from Harvard, I will sort of tell the story. And if people question me, they'll question me in a sort of stately, genteel way, you know, in peer-reviewed journals, and this will unfold over the course of years. But we're not in that era anymore. We're in an era in which if you have evidence of forgery and you're, you know, a credible scholar, whether you have a, a fancy affiliation or not, your forums where you can make those allegations and when you can post those findings where very important media will pay attention. You
1: have a really interesting exploration in your book of truth and facts and whether authenticity matters, especially in matters of faith. Can you describe for us Karen King's concept of history and
2: truth? Sure. It, it's a complicated one, and it's one that took a good deal of reading, I think, for me to completely um, digest and, and try to describe for readers. Um, I think, you know, Karen King will tell you that she is a postmodernist. In sort of the, the most basic sense, um, postmodernism do- doesn't believe in the idea of, a, of an objective reality that we can go out and see and touch and feel, and that's out there in the world. In the area of literary criticism, when one is trying to understand a text, for instance, like the Gospel of Thomas or any, any ancient text or any modern text using postmodernism as a way to understand the ways in which different groups of readers, male, female, um, gay, straight, black, white, brown, will produce different interpretations of text. A person reading a text in the 10th century will take away very different meanings from the text than that same person reading the text in the year 2020. Postmodernism as kind of an interpretive strategy can work really well. But postmodernism as a tool of historical investigation doesn't work so well. Because if you don't believe in truth, then it doesn't really matter whether the gospel of Jesus' wife is an authentic piece of antiquity or not. And I think what wound up happening here, and you know, readers will have to decide for themselves whether this argument is compelling, is that the tools that Karen King has used to be a successful and rather brilliant interpreter of these cryptic gospels didn't work so well when it came to the matter of investigating authenticity. Either the gospel of Jesus's wife is an authentic text from antiquity, or it's not. I think the old-fashioned tools of historical investigation need to be respected there, because that's how you determine whether something is real or not.
1: Did writing this book change your view at all of the line between truth in the postmodern sense and traditional factual truth?
2: Well, I think one of the reasons that my book is called Veritas, it is, you know, the Harvard slogan, uh, it is the Latin word for truth. But I think at its deepest level, what the book is exploring is the way in which different seekers of truth go about that very business. I think as a journalist, um, I very much believe that one can go out into the world, one can interview people, one can look at documents, one can do various kinds of testing. That's not to say that journalists get it right all the time. We make mistakes. We also try to correct those mistakes as soon as we're aware of them. So that while we might never obtain sort of like 100% verisimilitude, we're always sort of approaching that ideal. And then what I think is happening in postmodernism is that I have my truth, you have your truth. If I can obtain a position of power and and convince enough people of my narrative, then that narrative is the truth. In the final category of, of veritas seeking. We could consider people of faith. When you're in a place of connecting with some higher authority or, or the spiritual realm, you don't need to be able to footnote that. You don't need to be able to say there are documents supporting this view that are actual descriptions of what happened in the first century of Christianity. Now, there are some Christians for whom that belief is important, but there are many others who don't need to know that every single spiritual moment they're having connects back to something that happened in the real world 2,000 or 5,000 years ago, depending on your faith. Mm -hmm. And that's okay, um, because when you're in a house of worship, you don't need to use the same yardsticks um, or touchstones of truth uh, that you do when you are presenting yourself to the public as a historian. And I think one of the things that happened, and one of the things that I think, I hope readers take away from the book is that these different paths to truth wind up becoming crossed. Uh, they become sort of crossed wires in a way. So when Karen King goes in front of the, a public audience and, and um, you know, on the front pages of the New York Times and said, I am a Harvard historian who's presenting new data on the history of Christianity, that's not really what she's doing. Because if you look at her theoretical writings, she doesn't, at least in the conventional way, believe in history or truth or data. If you're gonna come out in the public and present yourself a historian, either you need to disclose what your methods are in, in more detail, or you shouldn't be presenting yourself as a historian, but as as perhaps a theologian. And I do think that at the end of the day, Karen King is more of a theologian than she is a historian. Mm -hmm. Karen King may disagree with that and she she has every right to, but I think my, my, my sort of reading of her scholarship and the way in which she sought to sell the story of this audacious forgery that even she believed from the very start was a forgery to the public as an authentic early Christian document that rewrote the Christian ethic of marriage and sexuality was very much the work of a theologian rather than a historian. I think for Karen King, the gospel of Jesus' wife was a kind of missing link. Karen King had done incredible work on on pioneering work, bringing to light stories of Mary Magdalene, stories of really important female figures in the so-called Gnostic gospels that really did have more power, that did give, in some sense, more agency to female um, notions of what it meant to be a good Christian, and that these were sidelined. But she had this larger critique. There was this sort of this hole that she lamented, which is that every time we get a portrayal of a powerful Mary Magdalene, she is stripped of the parts of her that make her a woman. There's this infamous line in the Gospel of Thomas. There's another debate between Jesus and the disciples over whether Mary Magdalene is qualified to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the male disciples are like, come on, give me a break. There's no way a woman could make it into heaven. And Jesus is like, yeah, just leave that to me, guys. She's absolutely qualified to enter the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, before she does that, I'm gonna make her male. So even in places where there's a kind of lifting up of, of, of women's voices, there's kind of a, a sort of a, a stripping of, of Mary Magdalene's femininity. And Karen King always lamented that. She said, why is it that each time we, we lift her up, we have to do that at the expense of her sexuality, at, at the expense of the parts of her that are female. The genius or the evil genius of the forger of the gospel of Jesus' wife is that in, in just two you know, very short lines of Coptic, we fill in the gap that Karen King had long lamented in her own scholarship, which is that we don't have a portrayal of Mary Magdalene in which she is both close disciple and confidant of Jesus and actual woman, like actual mm-hmm. sexual, married, physical, if you were at all a close reader of Karen King's work, and even if you weren't a close reader, but you happen to buy, for instance, one of the videotapes of her lectures, which you can do, um, you will notice fairly quickly that this is something that bothered her. Mm-hmm. And so if you were to create the peg that filled this hole, the gospel of Jesus' wife would be that peg. Yeah. Even when I went to interview her at Harvard in 2012, when I asked her like, what do you think the longest lasting impact of this fragment will be? This was before people, suspected it might be fake, although she suspected it was fake. She talked about that later. She said, I think the the longest lasting impact is that it will start a conversation. It will get people talking. It will have people reevaluating the things that they took for granted about Christianity and about the portrayal of women in Christianity and about the idea that sexuality is inherently sinful when I say she, I think she's in many ways a theologian. This is where that comes in, that she wanted people to have something that would get them to start to ask important questions about their own faith, mm-hmm. that would make it a, a more liberating, that would make it a bigger, more accepting place, which I think is a very noble idea. Like, you know, we should make places of faith more open, more inclusive. And the question is, why would she gamble her entire career, she was already at Harvard. She already had the oldest endowed professorship in any subject in North America. Why take this sort of gargantuan roll of the dice with her career, with her credibility on something that even she suspected was likely a fake? And I think that question, I really want readers to to, yeah, to, to struggle for with. divine yeah. for themselves. Exactly, exactly.
0: It feels like this is the right time now to talk about Walter Fitz, to talk about the con man. Is there a typical psychological profile of con men and does he fit it?
2: Walter Fitz, who is the owner of the Gospel of Jesus' Wife, who lied about its provenance and who I believe, and I think all scholars believe, is either the forger or worked closely with the forger of the Gospel of Jesus' Wife. He made a very close study of his mark. He knew exactly who he was approaching with the gospel of Jesus' wife. In fact, when I interviewed him at length, I asked, was there anyone else you approached with the gospel of Jesus' wife? And he said, no, only Karen King. I say, even when Karen King initially blowed you off and when she thought it was a fake, why didn't you go to someone else? He didn't have an answer for that. He went back to Karen King and said, please, 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 can you look at it again? He knew what he was doing in going to Karen King. He also, the other sort of mark of, a, of, of many, many con artists is that they always make you feel as if you're making the discovery. It's never a hard sell. It's always a, I don't, gee, gee, professor, I, I, I don't even, I, I, don't even know what I have here. It, it could be a fake. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just like a rube. I, I don't even know what I have. You know, I should probably, should, probably shouldn't even show this to you. Mm-hmm. And so the professor or the mark has the thrill of discovery. The good con artist will actually leave things open ended, precisely in the way that the Gospel of Jesus Wife was a fragment of a text. It wasn't the entire gospel of Jesus' wife. There's, there's no such thing. But the the forger and the con artist created a text that had enough gaps that the scholar could feel like they were bringing their, um, all of their erudition to bear in solving the puzzle so that the reward is the scholars, but so is the responsibility. And that's what all good con artists do.
1: It's obvious that you did a tremendous amount of research for this book. And just as one example, could you describe for us the steps that you took to identify Walter Fritz?
2: Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting <laughs> story. Um, Karen King, very early on, even in 2012, when people said, who is this anonymous collector who brought you this just spectacular, previously unknown piece of Christian history? Who is that person? And she said, sorry, journalists and, and fellow scholars, I, I can't tell you. He asked for anonymity and I have to honor his wishes. And I remember pressing, I said, look, come on. I mean, people need to know. Can you give us any indication at all? Is this, is this someone, if who's a famous collector, is this like someone who people in the collecting world would recognize as a manuscript collector? Was this someone you previously knew? And she said, That I can tell you, no, this isn't someone anyone would know. And I said, is it someone you had ever heard of before? And she said, no, he was a complete stranger. That in itself was like a little bit suspect to me because as a journalist, like our sources are everything. If you don't know who someone is who brings you a sensational scoop, that's risky. I mean, yeah, you can vet the scoop. You can go sort of truth test the scoop, talk to other experts, see if it looks legit. It serves you well as a journalist to know whether the person who walked into your newsroom with, you know, the Pentagon Papers or Watergate, you know, what their motivations were. What do they have to stand to gain from this becoming public? Why might they be reluctant to have their name associated with it? And do they have a record of truth telling and integrity? And Kara King not only wouldn't tell anybody who this person is, but it also became clear to me early on that she made almost no investigation into any of those questions before basically parading his papyrus into the world. She did mention the current owner was going to be anonymous, but the previous owner was a German-American man named Hans Ulrich Lecomp who allegedly had sold the Gospel of Jesus' wife to the current owner, the man who would turn out to be Walter Fritz, the con man, in the 1990s. Using public record searches, I was able to find a man by the name of Hans Ulrich Lecomp in Venice, Florida. Hans Ulrich LeCamp had died a few years earlier, so there's no interviewing him. I was able to interview relatives of Hans-Jolico Kamp who said he never collected papyrus. What are you talking about? He, he was a guy with an eighth grade education. He was a tool and die maker. He never had any interest in antiquity. So right away that cast doubt on the idea that Hans-Jolico Kamp would have much less sell an ancient papyrus like the gospel of Jesus' wife. And then using more public record searches, I was able to expand Lao world and identify people who are in his close proximity. One of them was uh, this gentleman named Walter Fritz and doing other kinds of advanced searches on the name Walter Fritz, I discovered that the same gentleman who was a business partner of Hans Lukács Comp and like an obscure auto parts business in Florida, there was another individual by the name Walter Fritz who had also studied Egyptology and studied Coptic in Berlin, Germany in the 1990s. And I'm thinking, wait a second. <laughs> I mean, Walter Fritz is a fairly common name, particularly in Germany. But is there any possibility that Hans Ulrich Lecom's business partner in Florida could have been this guy who 20 years earlier had studied Coptic at Berlin's free university? That was sort of the first step of connecting Hans Ulrich Lecomp to Walter Fritz. And there were many, many steps after that, you know, knocking on doors, making a lot of cold calls, flying out to Florida, having Walter Fritz lie to me at first about being the owner, tell me a bunch of um, nonsense stories, and then eventually speaking to me for hours and hours on end, you know, telling me some things that were true and many things that weren't. Um, it was a detective story. It was a globe straddling detective story. It. And one of the one of the I think pleasures of both reporting the book and I hope the pleasures of reading it is kind of following that detective story in a kind of a cat and mouse game between a reporter and uh, and subject.
1: It is really remarkable how much Ariel uncovered by digging into public records and holding interviews. And by the way, there were 450 people interviewed for this book. It's such a stark contrast to the process that was followed by the Harvard Theological Review, which is the prestigious academic journal where Karen King wrote her initial article that presented and interpreted the gospel of Jesus's wife. According to Ariel's reporting, the journal failed to heed red flags raised by the peer reviewers it chose for the article. It published it notwithstanding those red flags, and it still hasn't retracted it, even though Karen King herself has said that the papyrus is probably a fake. The publisher of the review has launched an investigation, so we'll see what happens. But it does seem to be one more indication of the dangers of failing to give sufficient weight to the importance of objective reality.
0: There's kind of a postmodern take here, too, which is that the story of why and how Karen King put forward this fraudulent manuscript and why and how academia responded the way it did can be understood by looking at the political and power structures that underlie academia. Ariel goes into those structures and motivations in some detail in his book. And it is fascinating.
1: We could do a whole episode just on that. (laughs) It's so true. But we want you to go out and buy the book. So we're going (laughs) to say that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player.
0: Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Ariel at
1: www.arielsabar.com or on Twitter at Arielsabar. Sabar. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at Eveohallam.com and me at julie Sternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com.
0: Until next time, happy book dreaming.
1: Happy book dreaming. Oh,
2: listen to Book with Julie and